TFM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp Five, our dedicated Star Trek Enterprise podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as he always is, is my esteemed co-host Matthew Rushing. And Matthew, just wondering if I could maybe borrow a cup of deuterium from you. <laughs> uh, you know, Chris, I'm actually fresh out, uh, shockingly enough, and uh, having a little trouble um you know getting getting my my quota finished here so um i don't know maybe come back uh i don't know try try later this season um that's probably going to be your best bet so sorry about that well i was very misled by that critassin i mean he told me you were the guy he actually called you mr deuterium uh yeah i mean i know it's shocking um and i i do love that moniker that's that's really you know what i'm going for in life mr um, d being known mr d <laughs> yes um so forgive me uh i'm sorry i was not able to to help you out but yeah again uh you know i could i could probably be ready say i don't know maybe um maybe closer to the fall okay so i i see i see when football season starts all right i got you yeah right. exactly exactly when you're when you're watching your old Alabama football there, uh, yeah, come on by. I'll probably have more of what you're looking for. All right, I'll do that. Yes, everyone, today we are going to continue our look at the 20th anniversary of Star Trek Enterprise with Episode 6 of Season 2, Marauders. The Klingons are back in town, and here's a quick rundown of the story. Archer continues setting the stage for centuries of conflict between the Federation and the Klingon Empire when he stands up for the inhabitants of a mining colony. But to be fair, I mean, how hard is it to come into conflict with Klingons? Deuterium aside, the captain doesn't like bullies, not on Earth and not here, on whatever planet this is. The crew of the Enterprise puts Klingon Commander Korak, not nearly as cute as his Zelda namesake, in his place when they teach the colonists how to defend themselves. Yeah, Matthew, I love the fact that <laughs> it's a little bit of retconning, considering that uh, Zelda, at least uh, the frequent use of Korax in Breath of the Wild, comes long after this episode was made. But the fact that the Klingon commander has the same name as those cute little forest creatures kind of <laughs> makes me laugh. <laughs> Yes, that is very funny. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just get started with this episode and the fact that it's a timeless theme, because I'll show my hand right up front. This has never been one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek Enterprise, not so much because there's something I dislike about it, but just because it doesn't really grab me, doesn't engage me too much. And that might mm -hmm. be because... It's a story that's been told over and over and over. And in fact, they based mm -hmm. this episode on Akira Kurosawa's The Seven Samurai, which yep. is also known as The Magnificent Seven in the US. And that story is one of Kurosawa's most famous films. It was made in 1954, and it tells a story that was set in 1586. And now Marauders mm -hmm. here, this story takes place in 2152, 
So you can see there that, what is that, almost 600 years later, the same situation is happening somewhere else out in space. And yep. I assume, Matthew, you're probably familiar with the Seven Samurai, especially because George Lucas drew from Kurosawa for a lot of Star Wars. But this mm-hmm. story in particular, Marauders, really closely mirrors the basic plot of the Seven Samurai. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, I've I've seen the Seven Samurai, and um, I've seen a few of Kurosawa's works. Obviously, you know, like you mentioned uh, specifically, because of the influence of George Lucas, uh, you know, had a, an impact on the things that you know I wanted to research. And and absolutely, I mean, it's 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 a story that we've seen before. Uh, and of course, like you said, Magnificent Seven then you know took that. Uh, with the the Western, that movie's been remade now as well. Um, and of course, you know, everybody's favorite Steve Martin film, The Three Amigos, which is basically the story too. Uh, so this is definitely a story that we've seen quite a few times, uh, in cinema history. And it's, it's kind of one, I think, you just it, it feels very familiar. I mean, we even saw it in Star Trek Insurrection. It's very similar type of story to this. So, yeah, I mean, not that that makes this a bad story, but it's definitely one that feels very familiar. Yeah, it's very familiar. I mentioned that it follows the plot of Seven Samurai rather closely, arriving at the village, reluctance of the villagers to talk to them at first, then they find out that there's this problem going on. They train the villagers to defend themselves. Then when the bandits or marauders in this case arrive, they're shocked that the villagers have these new tactics to defend against them. So it very much follows that element, even having the lone boy in the story, although the story itself is a bit different, but putting those elements in shows how they drew from that story. So being Mm -hmm. a very basic story like this, however, does it engage you? Does the way the story pulls in Archer and the rest of the crew and puts them in another situation where they're out in space where they have to make, I guess, essentially a moral decision, do they leave these people or do they help them? Does that connect with you? Does it work as a way of advancing the Enterprise story? You know, I I think... What's interesting about this story is that it does for me with the Enterprise crew, and specifically it's because it connects with the type of stories that we have been telling for the Enterprise crew and the conundrums that they've had with whether or not to get involved. And so I think to tell the story here makes sense. Um, And I think, too, because... One of the things that it also helps us do is be able to see the ways in which the characters have grown, right? And the questions that they're asking. In fact, Archer even assumes that T'Pol will not be on his side here because they've had this type of discussion before. But then, of course, he frames the discussion with different points that he feels like makes this different in this situation than in other situations that they have faced. And so... I think to me, that's what actually makes this really interesting is that, yes, we have, you know, seen this before and this discussion with the the crew of the Enterprise, but I feel like they're utilizing this episode as a way to show 
you know, Archie even mentions we've been in space for all, over a year now. And so this comes down to everything that they've been through. And I think we then get an opportunity to discuss something a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. Well, the use of the clean lines, let's talk about that. I think that part, even though I'm not a huge fan of clean lines or clean on episodes, probably well known to longtime listeners of the network, I think the use of clean lines here works well in connection to Archer and building the Star Trek mythology, the relationship between the Federation and the Klingons and how it went bad. And it's interesting that, and tell me how you feel about this. I often feel that in a sense, and it makes sense for how the real world works, a single person can influence the course of of history between two groups of people and Archer in his interactions with the Klingons, this is the fourth time that we see them. It's building this animosity between the two sides. And initially, I feel like Archer approached the Klingons trying to help. And even in Sleeping Dogs, he's trying to help. But clearly, the Klingons don't want any help. Mm-hmm. And now he faces off with a group of, you know, these are probably just Everyday Klingons, they're not warriors on some big flagship or anything like that, but they certainly have the Klingon personality, and they're tougher than the colonists, and they're going to take what they want, and they probably do this to many people on many worlds, small colonies or miners or such. Reminded me a little bit of Aaron of Mercy, going back to a TOS connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that case, it was... Yeah, I think that's a great pull, actually. Yeah. I mean, in that case, it might be seen more as the Klingons trying to expand their empire, expand their reach uh, geographically in space. But it's also a case where, from the Klingon perception, they're dealing with a group of people who basically can't defend themselves and they'll just do whatever they want. Mm Mm-hmm. So anyway, I I was meandering there, but what do you think about this idea of Archer's interactions with the Klingons and building animosity? So I, it was, I was actually kind of shocked that you put that on the outline because I didn't read that as that, this part of the episode at all, because of the fact that Archer and his crew dress like the people there, they hide themselves from the Klingons. And so... I don't think the Klingons ever realize that you're you right. know, the, yeah. the crew is involved in this at all, which is, is I think that's where I actually feel like the episode does a great job of showing just how much Archer has learned uh, over the last, um, last year. Or, I mean, the idea of making sure that you keep yourself from raising the animosity level with you and the Klingons. That's a good point. By, yeah. uh, you know, hiding your hiding yourself from them here is a really, really smart idea. And to me, I think that that shows just real growth in the character here. And I really am glad that we went that route because 
I do think it would have been slightly silly for them to get involved here and basically let the Klingons know. And now, on in that, we, we do know from T'Pol that most likely these are probably raiders um, yeah, and, and right. marauders that don't have, yeah. have anything to do with the, you know, they're just, they're just Klingons out there trying to make a buck and, um, you know, take advantage of people that they can take advantage of because they can't help themselves, right? They, they don't, they don't, or at least they don't think they can help themselves. And so I think that's great, you know, too. I think what it does is it adds dimension too, as we've talked about, you know, with what Deep Space Nine does for the Klingons and it gives them dimension here. We can see that, you know, this, this actually might not be something that the Klingon Empire would necessarily, uh, or the council would necessarily sanction, you know, mm-hmm. Um, so I think all of that's just fantastic stuff. And so I'm interested then because you did seem to take it that way. What kind of made you, uh, see it that way? Uh, I think I'm just thinking of it in broad terms. What you explain, of course, makes perfect sense. And they do take that step to not expose the fact that they are, from Earth and it's Starfleet and it's Archer and so forth. I think when I look at it, the, the reason I put that on the outline and the reason I'm thinking that way is probably less the details of this story, but just as a viewer, we're being given these periodic encounters between Archer and Klingons and it builds and it builds and the Klingons are predisposed to not liking everyone they meet, which is why I said in the intro there that how hard is it to get on the bad side of Klingons. But there was potential for better relations between the Klingons and the humans, I think, in the beginning. But maybe the inexperience of Archer and his crew in the early months of their voyage the first year when they did encounter Klingons, they didn't quite know how to handle them. And it just sent the relationship on this trajectory of of conflict, which eventually leads to war. And I'm just thinking of it in those terms. And I don't know if that's any intention on the part of Berman and Braga writing this stuff to build that influence into the relationship I, I think using the Klingons here makes a lot of sense merely for the story. If you're going to base something on Seven Samurai and you know who, what aliens do we most associate with that type of culture in modern Star Trek, it would be the Klingons and also raiders, marauders, Klingons. It makes sense. Warriors make sense. So yeah, I think I'm just thinking of it in broader terms and maybe I got myself off track in terms of what really happens in the story, because you're right. There is no one-on-one conflict between Archer and the Klingons here. Well, and, you know, I, I do think, though, it is it is an interesting question. And I I think that by asking it, it allows us to see actually the ways in which I think Archer is is making good decisions here. Mm-hmm by 
utilizing, you know, orbits and, you know, uh, costuming and all of that kind of thing to not allow the Klingons to know that he's here so that this doesn't escalate tensions between uh, Starfleet and the Klingons. Um, and and so, and it, I guess, again, too, I think the thing that it really does is it does show that there has been character growth for this character in the amount of time that he has been in space. It, it's not, this character is asking more questions than he would have ever asked um, at the beginning of the show. And I think that's a really nice thing to be able to see. So if you're going to tell the story, you you need it to do something for your characters. And I do think this does enough for, especially the character of Archer. But I mean, that's not the only character we see here. I mean, heck, this episode shows us that, you know, when we first uh, saw in season one with Hoshi uh, practicing with the training remotes, mm-hmm. yeah, she has become somebody who's very proficient now in, in, in weapons. And so that that's an, one of those places where we just took, a, a you know, 30 seconds, maybe a minute, to utilize something to show us where we've come with one character, which that's that's great. You know, that's what you actually want from a second season, right? Okay, well, speaking of that moment with Hoshi, another thing that we can talk about a little bit is how they do get everyone involved in this story. We're, we're inching our way towards that time in Enterprise where the, the characters who aren't part of the triumvirate start to fade away a little bit more. But the element of the basic story of Seven Samurai training the villagers to protect themselves does give them the opportunity here to get Hoshi involved, to get Travis involved, keep everybody involved. And what you point out is great. Yeah, it is that very soft continuity that we talk about sometimes of just going back and revisiting moments and reminding us of things that happen. And with Hoshi, yeah. Well, and I mean, that's the other thing to hear uh, that we get. And it, it's a it's a shift a little bit in the sense that this whole season and in, in, in the end of last season, you know, we saw to Paul becoming closer and closer with her human crewmates mm-hmm. in the sense of the way that she interacts with them. Uh, and not only that, but just changes for her. And I don't know if this is necessarily a change for her, but it's, it's something that Archer doesn't expect. He expects her to disagree with him. And yet, she does agree with him that this bullying is wrong, that these people being taken advantage of is wrong. The question for her, and of course for Archer, is, is okay, if we want to do something about it, how do we make sure that it is more a more permanent solution than one that's where we help them and then, you know, the next time they come back, you know, they wipe these people out or something, you mm-hmm. know? So I think... I really appreciated that because it really gave us another, you know, milestone of to Paul's journey with her human crewmates. So, yeah, yeah. It the fact that she she tells Archer that I agree with you, right? 
that really caught Archer off guard. Yeah, I think you mentioned <laughs> He's like, that. Wait, wait, wait. Did can I can I just have you say that again so I can record that and play exactly. it back to you later on? <laughs> yeah, I could just see him recording it, and then when he says things, he just presses play on a little recorder, and he has to pull going. <laughs> yeah. I agree with you. I agree. With I you. agree with you. <laughs> but anyway, you mentioned earlier that this happened, and it's a continuation of what we've discussed on the past few episodes of the podcast here about how she has grown and grown and grown and I'm thinking if that starts to transcend logic for her where she's starting to think a little bit more like a human where she's at least looking at situations and making decisions that aren't purely based on logic at this point because Mm -hmm. I don't know do you agree that the logical thing to do would be to not get involved in this and go find some deuterium somewhere else. Well, I mean, you know, Archer mentioned that they only have about two weeks left Mm -hmm. of the deuterium. And so. But of course they, they get what they need to pull. They get what they need. And then to pull tells Archer that it's on board. And then it's Archer who's thinking, well, we need to do something about these people. And then, you know, she says she right, agrees. Right, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Right, right. So it's it's yeah, after yeah. they do at least secure enough deuterium mm. that then Topol decides to go along with this plot. Yeah, I mean that's a good point. That's an excellent point that that you know we we do actually see Topol make a decision that is is a little bit shocking. I think in the sense that you know uh, at least from from where we've been with her. Um, that she would say, no, I, I think we should maybe do something about this because you're right. You know, they did get what they need. What I do love about that, though, is that there's a sense of T'Pol, I think, being willing to, along with uh, the way Archer thinks, to say that things are right and wrong and should be changed mm-hmm. and that if we have the ability to change, we we should do something about it. And I think, you know, that's, um, that is quite a human thing, I think, to do. You know, especially with, with what we know of, of as humans in the series. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it is, I think, like everybody else, you know, we were, as viewers, a little bit just as shocked that to Paul would would make this decision, but uh, it it makes for I think this this whole thing is about growing character, and I really appreciate that we're not taking the easy road in any of these decisions that we're making with these characters, especially the Vulcans, and. It makes it much more interesting, I think, to do things that are slightly shocking to us as viewers because otherwise, you know, why do the show? You know, mm-hmm. like, I just feel like it would be boring if there weren't any surprises. And so this is one of those places where I really feel like Enterprise is giving us an opportunity to do something different, which is the whole point of this show, which was not to just be your grandpa's Star Trek. It was to 
try and and give us something new and by giving us a different type of Vulcans and by actually giving us Vulcan growth, I mean, how many years did it take Spock to get to the point where he says that, you know, famous line in, in Star Trek six about mm-hmm. how logic is only the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. Like that's the entire run of, of him as Spock, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You know? Yeah. I mean, it takes that long for us to get to that point. And so, yeah, I really think, you know, this is, okay, much nicer. That we're, we're not going to make you wait. Yeah. I'm picturing them doing something else different. I, I wish that there had been a scene, and also getting everyone involved, I wish there had been a scene where the Klingons are pulling out a phaser and they're... They're about to shoot somebody, and then Porthos runs up and bites their pants leg and pulls on and tugs and tugs, and then they they lose their their focus. <laughs> yeah, it could have happened. I mean, could happen. It it would have made up for peeing on the tree, I think. Right? <laughs> it, help help us out, Porthos. Do something. Yeah, seriously, Porthos. For come on. Yeah. Exactly. I, I wouldn't mind him peeing on a Klingon. See, that would have been kind of funny. See, now that would have been perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the, but then they would have known humans were there, that, right? That's Maybe, true. Maybe, possibly. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, who knows how much they know about human uh, domestic animals, so. Well, maybe <laughs> their animosity would have been directed towards canines on Earth, not humans themselves from that point forward. This is true. And then everybody would have been even madder at uh, Berman and Braga, you know, so. <laughs> exactly. Uh, talking about being able to do something different this story, though, using this very basic story, but putting the Star Trek wrappings around it, they were able to use T'Pol, as we're talking about, to do something with a character that's unexpected, even though the plot of the story is very straightforward and very familiar to the viewer. So that's uh, going back to the very beginning when I asked if the basic mm-hmm. story works for you with Star Trek, I think that's a good point of how you can use something timeless and put a twist on it that works for your universe. And last thing here, I put it on the outline. I don't think there's really much to discuss, but it just caught my attention. And talking about Porthos reminds me of pets and animals in Star Trek. And I called this spot syndrome because we all remember in the episode Genesis on The Next Generation where Spot, Data's cat, miraculously switched genders and became female and had kittens, which helped save the day. And here, Phlox's osmotic eel is suddenly female. Had been male before, now it's female. And so I don't know if that was a mistake, given that... Berman and Braga are writing the episode, mm-hmm. uh, wrote the story anyway, and they would certainly know, or if it's like a sneaky homage to Genesis, which is how I like to think of it. <laughs> that is, uh, I did not even catch that. And I saw that on the outline. I was like, <laughs> I would never have even thought of um you know, I mean, I guess it just shows you how little I know about Flox's menagerie. <laughs> so, Well, I thought it was quite generous of him to be willing to give away his eel. So, 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, well, and, and it seemed like maybe he had another one or something, or so. he could get another one easily. I think so, a backup you know. Yule, yeah, probably. Uh, who? I mean, that everybody needs a backup Yule. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, I think we've run through everything anyway that I have to say about this episode. What are your final thoughts, and what's your rating? You know, I, I don't think that this is a bad episode or anything, but I do think, you know, in in the run of, of episodes, uh, it's probably slightly more mediocre. Um, and and it, again, it's watchable. I had no problems rewatching the episode. But I will say this. I kind of forgot it existed. So that's probably yeah. um, not great. And so I would say this is probably three out of five gender swapping eels wow all right we should publish a book one of these days with it's like an encyclopedia of everything that we've ever used as a rating metric on the network not just on this show but oh man i i don't uh i don't know if uh, we have time for that that'd be quite a task if someone wanted to compile that especially going back to the ready Mm -hmm. room all those years yeah it's true (laughs) all right yeah same for me like I don't forget the episode exists, but I remember that, oh, yeah, there's this Klingon episode early in season two. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what I think about it. And I don't know. I, I The discussion, I think, was good today for me anyway, just because, as usually happens when I discuss Star Trek with you, I, I find something new to consider as a positive from the writing and how it builds on Star Trek for us as viewers and and digs into characters and issues. So that was good. But I don't know. I think I'm just going to give this episode four cranial ridges. Nice. (laughs) All right, everyone. We would love to hear your thoughts on Marauders. If you'd like to share those with us, there are many ways for you to do that. Perhaps the best way is to go to Facebook and join the Babel Conference. That is our listeners group. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field and it should come up. If not, type the whole name, the Babel Conference. It is a closed group, so if you're joining for the first time, please answer the questions and agree to the rules of the forum so that I can let you in. You'll find a post there on the timeline for this episode, and you can just put your comments there, share those with fellow listeners and Matthew and me, and we'd love to hear from you there. And if you would like to send us an email, you can do that as well. Just go to our website, trek.fm slash contact, choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5, and that will come to Matthew and me by email. And in social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and everywhere, you can find us under the username trekfm. Now, Matthew, when you're not learning to become more evasive with those one-on-one Vulcan martial arts lessons with T'Pol, where can people find you? Oh, goodness. Well, you can find me all over social media in the name MattRushing02. You can also find me uh, here on the network, on our side of the network that doesn't have anything to do with Star Trek, called the 602 Club. And we talk about all of those fandoms that we love so much um, that are outside of the Star Trek fandom. Uh, You can also find me uh, doing uh, literary treks about the books and the comics of Star Trek, The Orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Saddle Up about Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and... The Artificial Tango about uh, Star Trek Picard. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, I did two shows, and I do two shows. Um, one's completed, though. It's called Owl Post. I did that with Dre Kaufman. We talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series 
one chapter at a time. And then you can also find me over there doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills, which is a Star Wars podcast. But Chris, um, you know, when you're not uh, trying to figure out what happened to your other eel, where can people find you? Yeah, I like to keep two wheels around and I feel a little uncomfortable when there's only mm, one. So understandable. I really need to find them. When I'm not doing that, you can find me elsewhere on the network doing the shows that you mentioned that we do together. Also, Larry Namachek and I do the Ready Room from time to time and there's Interphase and you can hear me in many episodes of many shows in the back catalog, including the early episodes of this show when I first launched it to get out of space dock at warp five. So check those out. If you want to hear more of my thoughts on star Trek, and if you would like to chat in social media, you can find me everywhere under the username C Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y that's my name everywhere, but Twitter is where I'm most active. And I'd love to chat with you there. If you'd like to help us keep all of these shows going, we could definitely use your help through Patreon to find out how to get involved in the network, become an associate producer and such please visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. We would not be here without the support of all of you listening. And thank you so much to everyone who is supporting us right now. And if you're not doing so yet, I do hope that you will consider doing so. Thank you so much, everyone. Well, Matthew, I am going to prepare for a little chase next time as we get ready to discuss the seventh. Well, Chris, that sounds like a pretty good idea. So let's go. <laughs> <laughs>